when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to a special episode of FT Politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and we're here to discuss the dual resignations of David Davis and Boris Johnson and all the cabinet chaos that has ensued over the past couple of days. I'm joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Laura Hughes, our political correspondent, and Robert Shrimsley, our UK political commentator, to unravel what happened. George, let's begin with what happened on Sunday evening and Monday night. David Davis decided after many threatened attempts he was going to walk away he handed in his resignation letter and then Boris Johnson decided he would do the same thing. Yes, that's right. And uh, in a way, Downing Street had expected DD and Boris Johnson to resign at the Chequers meeting. In fact, they'd made contingency plans and there were briefings that those were the two that they were watching and there was an expectation they might go. And the, the fact that they didn't resign on the night of Chequers, I think, led to a feeling in Downing Street that they were through it. And I was speaking to someone in number 10 on Sunday who was saying, well, we've got to try to avoid triumphalism here. They really thought they cracked it and that this week would be a sort of uh, march of triumph for Theresa May with an adoration of the Tory party at, at the House of Commons. And of course, it didn't turn out like that. I think probably um, it was a question of David Davis and Boris Johnson considering what they'd agreed to at Chequers, first of all. I second think this is a bit more of a cynical interpretation. I think they thought if they resigned late on Friday night at Chequers, their resignations would have been completely overshadowed by England's World Cup quarter-final match against Sweden. And you have to give them credit where credit's due. They certainly created more of an impact by resigning on Monday, just before Theresa May came to the House of Commons. So let's just look at them individually. David Davis resigned essentially because he said he didn't like the compromises that were, he was being asked to make. But there's been this sense going for quite some time, George, that he's actually been cut out of the Brexit process in a while and his concerns and reservations weren't being listened to by Downing Street. So essentially, he looked and thought, well, what's the point of hanging around? Yeah, I mean, his position was absolutely intolerable. I can't blame David Davis for resigning. He was supposed to be in charge of the negotiations, but he was cut out of, A, the negotiations, which were being conducted by Theresa May's top official, Ollie Robbins, and B, from formulating policy, because that was being done in number 10 by Ollie Robbins. And in the end, he was just being treated as a sort of political salesman, being handed a script to read out by Downing Street, which he didn't agree with. His concerns were overruled. And he was being asked this week to go out around Europe on a tour selling a policy that he frankly didn't agree with and he hadn't even been consulted on. Robert Shimsley, do you think David Davis was right to resign? Yes, I do, actually. I think he didn't believe in the policy of the government. And as George said, he was one of the people who was being asked to sell it. He had been consistently undermined in this process um, and marginalised. So I don't think you can blame him for doing it. And I don't think it was necessarily very wrong either to think about it for a day or so before he finally jumped. I think Boris is a completely different um, scenario. Yes, tell us about Boris then. So obviously he went silent on Monday. He was meant to be appearing at the Western Balkan Summit in London. He didn't show up. He didn't show up to the Cabinet meeting either about the situation in Salisbury. And then, not to everyone's surprise, it was then announced that he decided to quit and wrote really quite an extraordinary resignation letter. Yeah, Boris going silent ought to be quite a clue, actually, um, with hindsight. You know, you could take a generous view and say 
he found it increasingly hard to swallow this this, this proposal. He, he chewed on it and chewed on it. And in the end, he just couldn't live with it any longer. He's deeply torn, deeply convicted. You can take that view. I don't, personally. I think that a more plausible scenario is that he couldn't see any benefit in resigning by himself. So he was going to stick with it. He'd said in Cabinet, you know, we now got, we've got a song to sing and we have to get behind the Prime Minister. But when David Davis quit, Boris thinks, this is a chance, this is my moment. And let's actually look at the choreography of his resignation. He doesn't resign with David Davis. He doesn't resign immediately after David Davis goes. He waits through the day. He drafts a resignation letter full of self-reverential rhetoric and references with certain phrases to the resignation of Geoffrey Howe, which Tory MPs will pick up on. He calls in a photographer to have himself photographed signing the document as if it's the Treaty of Rome. And the whole thing is choreographed for the great man acts. I don't know that Boris actually has a specific plan to get from the resignation to Downing Street. I think he takes the general view that what you do if you want the apples is you kick the tree and see if they drop into your hands. And I think he thinks this is a moment of crisis. This is an opportunity. I better grab it. And the other thing for Boris in considering this is that he knows time's running out on his opportunities. Other people are emerging. Other candidates are coming through. You know, If he ever had a chance, and many people think he didn't because he'd been such an ineffectual foreign secretary, but if he ever had a chance, chance the clock was really ticking on him and he needed to get motoring and this is the key thing laura hughes that essentially david davis resigned because he just had enough of the policy had enough of the situation and as george said that's why you can understand that he's quit boris johnson on the other hand seemed to have quit just because it sort of seemed like the right thing to do at that particular moment the big question is what happens now because i think david davis will essentially go to the back benches he will no doubt become a vocal critic of the government's brexit policy and will be pushing for a harder cleaner break and we'll see him in the opinion pages and on television vision and what have you. But what does Boris Johnson do now? Because his support amongst the Conservative Party is a lot weaker than it was even months or years ago. So he's not exactly ready to mount a challenge against Theresa May. As Robert said, there doesn't really seem to be much plan to it. My actual theory as to the reason why Boris left was that given David Davis had he would have looked like a bit of a of an idiot, really, not to, because you have your mate quitting, saying, I don't agree with this. We had briefing from Chequers in which Boris Johnson described the plan as polished turd to then not resign. He would have looked really two-faced. I think that's what he realised. He was actually put into a bit of a corner. And I think, personally, he would have perhaps preferred for David Davis to stay in position because then he could just quietly remain in cabinet where actually he does have a better chance to, to launch some kind of leadership bid later when the time was right. Now he's ousted on the back benches. I don't know how effective he's really going to be. If I was the Prime Minister, I wouldn't be too worried that she'd lost David Davis and Boris Johnson because actually we have a situation this morning in which the top four most important government positions are held by those that campaigned for Remain. So she's actually got a cabinet that's going to be a bit easier for her to negotiate with. Yeah, and I think this is the real question, George, is either what do these two do, but it's also a question of um, is there going to be more bloodletting to come because all our eyes are now on the Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party and do they mount a leadership challenge against Theresa May? So to do that they'd have to get in these 48 letters saying they have no confidence and then have a confidence vote. So I think they probably could get the 48 letters now but again it's to what end? What's their plan? That's the thing that's been missing throughout this this whole chaotic uh, couple of days. Yes, as George Osborne um, likes to say, the first rule of politics is learn how to count. And throughout the crises of the last 48 hours, the fundamental arithmetic has not changed. There is not a majority in the Conservative Party for the kind of hard Brexit that Boris Johnson 
and David Davis favours. There certainly isn't a majority in the House of Commons for that kind of uh, scenario. Therefore, you could remove Theresa May. You could create all sorts of chaos. You could um, make the Conservative Party unleadable and the government uh, tear the government down. But it still wouldn't change the fundamentals. You still will not get the kind of Brexit through the House of Commons that Boris Johnson wants. So it is possible. And Robert, Robert and I worked through in the House of Commons through the 90s and the Maastricht uh, era, where you can create the kind of atmosphere of complete chaos where people do really, really stupid things. And when Europe's stirred into the mix with the Conservative Party, people do really stupid things. So I'm not discounting the possibility that 48 people will come forward and trigger a vote of no confidence. But to what end, as you say, they will have three months of turmoil. At the end of it, you might have a more Eurosceptic leader than Theresa May, but that leader will not be able to get through the kind of agenda that Boris, Boris Johnson wants. You could trigger the confidence vote and lose it. She could win. Mm. So actually, they could then have fired their only shot. I, I think the, the big question, the one that George was touching on at, at the end there, is that the issue of the parliamentary arithmetic, let alone the Conservative Party arithmetic, it's quite hard to construct a majority for anything much at the moment. What is, I think, true is that if the Tory Brexit hardliners want to stop Theresa May's plan... They can do it. They can do it as long as the Labour Party is prepared to vote against it too. It's very hard to see a plan getting through the Commons that doesn't have a degree of cross-party support. You know, There are around 70 to 90 Labour MPs, like Chuka Amuna, who voted or abstained against party lines to stay in the European single market. Those people, those Labour pro-Europeans, are going to have to look deep into their soul at some point because... Theresa May will, at some stage, come back with a plan that has been agreed with Brussels that is some form of softer or realistic Brexit. It will deeply fail to satisfy anybody, especially the really pro-European group. But they're going to have to ask themselves, is this the best we're going to get? And if we stop this, if we vote this down, what, what comes next? And, Laura, this is one of the most crucial things that also happened yesterday was that the Downing Street whips were going to brief Labour MPs directly on their plans. And this speaks to what Robert was saying. And it's essentially an acknowledgement that we don't have the numbers to get through this plan. But if we can convince, you know, some of those opposition MPs, then you do see a way that the Chequers plan does get through the House of Commons. Yeah, well, Jacob Rees-Mogg was outside the 1922 committee openly briefing journalists. And this was the point that he was really adamant on. He does not want the Prime Minister to court Labour MPs and use them to get her soft Brexit through the Commons. He feels that is betrayal. And he, as we know, is popular amongst the grassroots Tories. And they won't like the idea of their Prime Minister reaching out a hand across the House of Commons to Labour, the enemy, to get through a plan that they might not support. That's the point she needs to be really careful on. And I, I thought it was interesting timing to choose yesterday to go out and meet Labour and Liberal Democrat MPs when there was such, you know, stirrings amongst her own party and, and, and the Eurosceptics were feeling pretty aggrieved and their, you know, top cabinet members are resigning. I, I'm not sure yesterday was the day to so openly brief the opposition in the way they did. I just don't think... I agree with Theresa May's assessment of this and the Conservative Party whips. I don't think there is any scenario where opposition MPs and Labour MPs even on the Chukaramuna wing of the party, will support whatever deal Theresa May comes back with. Because in the end, if you think about the scenario we're talking about in the autumn where she comes back with the deal, people like Chukaramuna want Britain to stay in the EU. They will see that as an opportunity to basically block whatever deal Theresa May comes back and create so much uncertainty that in the end, no deal can't get through the House of Commons either. And that Theresa May may be forced either to have a general election to try and break the impasse or have a second referendum, at which point they think 
that uh, they might be able to overturn the original referendum results. So I think Theresa May's calculation is right, that she will need the vote of every single Conservative MP, from Dominic Grieve right through to Jacob Rees-Mogg, if she's going to get the deal through. Doesn't that come down to how the choice is framed? I mean, this cuts both ways. How the choice is framed? Because if it is framed as it's this or it's a cliff-edge Brexit or it's this or it's no Brexit, Mm. then people who really, really hate the deal may feel forced yes. to go along with it. So the, the, it's all going to come down, and I don't know the extent to which Theresa May has wargamed this all the way through, but it's going to come down not to how much you like the deal in front of you, but what the next alternative is. Yes, A general election, perhaps, and Jeremy Corbyn as leader, and I don't think you'll find many members, even of the ERG, who are willing to sacrifice their government for Brexit. I, I really think they're, you know, mm. all talk on a lot of these things. And I do think she'll be able to get it through in the end. And th- and this is the, th- the key question, George, is what status the Chequers plan in now that it's done? And, you know, because the ERG was saying, as Laura was saying very vocally, this plan needs to be dropped. And if it doesn't drop, then we're going to keep attacking, attacking, attacking. But do you get a sense from Downing Street they are still happy to hold the line and just keep going on this front? Yes, I mean, they say they're sticking to the Chequers plan, and I think they absolutely will. I don't think there's any doubt at all that Theresa May will stick exactly to the Chequers plan that was agreed by the Cabinet at Chequers. The big question, of course, is then that if you think about the continuum of this, they've got the, the Theresa May has moved the party about 50 percent of the way to where she's got to take the party to get a deal in Brussels, because further down the line, there will be free movement will be back on the agenda. Financial contributions will be on the agenda and the whole services sector into the single market. If You can't break the single market. So the, 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 I think the, the fight will be about to what extent Theresa May is able, able to go beyond checkers. And I agree with Laura. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of mouth here and not a lot of action because, at the end of the day, I mean, she is going to have to compromise with Brussels to get a deal through. The, the Eurosceptics keep saying, "Well, we're going to wait." And if a, our real fight's going to be over immigration. Our real fight's going to be over this. The real fight keeps being pushed down the line, and we're going to have a leadership challenge against Theresa May at some point. The point never comes, and I think we'll arrive at the, the autumn. Yeah, history. we'll arrive at this. We'll <laughs> arrive at this point. Uh, Robert, the scenario Robert's just describing, where she comes back with the deal, and the deal is between the deal that I've got or the possibility you don't get Brexit at all. And finally, uh, Robert, this is the thing we'll have to watch now in terms of how Brussels responds to what was agreed to at Chequers, because Michelle Barnier has been fairly upbeat. These are very interesting. We'll look at these proposals. But ultimately, what Theresa May has put together is still cherry-picking those parts of EU membership, something which negotiators said they will never really countenance. But on the other hand, if that deal is just dismissed out of hand, that will then endanger her position at home, and they must be able to see that if Theresa May does go, she will probably be replaced by someone who's even more hardline and even less willing to compromise. Yeah, I I do think it's a staggering fact of this process that two years in, we're still talking about the deal that the British government has managed to get with itself. And we're still waiting to see the real engagement with the European Union. I have to just take one point, though. It does always irritate me when I hear them saying there can be no cherry picking, when at the same time they're saying you have to divide up the United Kingdom and offer different different terms for parts of it. That is, to my mind, also um, cherry picking, but that's by the by. I think that there is no incentive for the European Union to be overly helpful at this stage. It sees a government on the run. It sees a prime minister who is moving in the direction that it wants her to move. Um, I see no upside at this stage for them in being anything more than constructively engaged. The European Union, as George knows only too well, is very, very well used to taking these things right down to the wire. The clock is on its side. I would expect us to see deadlines shifting all the way through this process. It's got to be sorted out by October. 
or November. We've definitely got to be settled by the January summit. This is going to stay a moving target right to the end. And then, Laura, we've also got the trade bill coming up next, which is going to be fun. And I think then we'll get a proper sense of the numbers the ERG have and the numbers that um, the hardcore remainers on the other side have as well, because they've got so many amendments on all sides they want to tack onto this bill to try and shape the government's hand. So that might be the next round of hostilities. It's interesting because I feel like I'm normally ringing up the pro-remainers trying to work out their numbers. And actually, this time we're going to be counting the other side, the ERG. And I I think we'll see less than we expect, actually. I really do. I think yesterday was meant to be a big moment. A lot of Eurosceptics I spoke to were hoping for mass resignations, ministers to walk out. And instead, they saw, you know, their mates, Dominic Raab, suddenly getting promotions. So I think, actually, they're not going to have the numbers that we think. And Theresa May can feel pretty okay today. I was just going to make one last point. I don't for a second imagine this is going to happen, but it does occur to me that a really mischievous and strategic thinking Jeremy Corbyn, instead of thinking if we oppose everything that this government proposes, we might bring it down, might actually say, do you know what? If we offer our help to drive through a Brexit that half of the Conservative Party doesn't want, we could paralyse them for an extremely long time. And I think there's quite a useful strategic calculation for Labour in saying to Theresa May at some point, you know what? You work with us. You shun up your party. Let's help this split in its way. Well, let's see if Jeremy Corbyn has that much strategy now to um, do that, or maybe he's a listener of FT Politics. Who knows? Anyway, thank you very much, George, Robert and Law. We'll be back on Saturday for our normal podcast instalment. Until then, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.